This morning, as uh, Dawson read to you from Isaiah chapter 42, that's where we're going to, um, to be at. <clears throat> so I would ask you to open your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, get a phone. Surely you've got a Bible app on your phone. If not, you could download one very fast. Um, I preach from the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible. So um, if you have an app that you can get that one, it would be easier to follow along with. But this morning, I want to start our Advent season with the first servant song. And what I mean by that is that in Isaiah, there are four songs that are sung. And now, I want to remind you that I, I told you when I first started Isaiah that much of this book is Hebrew poetry. That's the way that it was written. So, there is a lot of this book that is written in what we call songs, or even psalms, if you will. And so whenever we get to Isaiah 42, we have the first what we call servant song. And there are four of them. And ultimately, they describe the, the service of the coming Messiah. They describe the, the suffering and the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. And they describe the exaltation and the, um, um, when he comes back to be king, the reign of the king, if you will. And so we're going to be going through those over the next four weeks. We're going to be looking at a song a week and, um, and see how far we get into them. But this morning our first servant song comes from Isaiah chapter 42. And I want you to notice if you've got an outline, um, if you didn't, they're out here in the foyer on a pedestal out there, or you can get it on Facebook, Wells Baptist Church Facebook page. But if you've got the outline, you'll notice that I said that ever since the fall of man or the curse of the sin uh, on the world, the Lord has been slowly revealing just little by little about who and what the Messiah would be. The Savior of the world that we're waiting on, the one that's going to save us from the wrath of sin. We didn't really know everything about what He was going to look like until time progressed and little by little more revelation came out and God showed us this is what you're looking for. This is who he's going to be. For instance, in Genesis, you'll remember that after man fell into sin, he told them that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head, right? And so we knew that it was going to be a male seed of the woman that was going to come and be the Messiah. This is the reason why whenever um, um, Cain killed Abel, it was a devastating thing because they were really expecting that her seed was going to be the Messiah. Well, now it can't be Cain because Cain has killed his brother. And it can't be Abel because Abel is gone. And so whenever God gives um, Eve another child, you go back into, I think it's Genesis chapter 4, maybe at the end of 3, I can't remember. But whenever Eve finds out that she is pregnant with Seth, she looks and she gives praise to God and she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. In other words, she was really anticipating and looking that this was going to be the Messiah, the seed of the woman, because that's all they knew. This is the reason why when... Um, when a Jewish woman was, um, had trouble with fertility and was not able to have a child, they, it was a shameful thing for her because she was hoping that she would be the one that would give birth to the Messiah. And so you remember when Hannah was in the temple and she was praying and uh, the, the priest thought she was drunk because she was praying and pleading with God for a male child. And the reason why she wanted a male child was because they understood this prophecy that the seed of the woman was going to be what was going to crush the serpent's head. That's the biggest part of the revelation that they had. And so because of that, that's what they were looking for. Speeding it up just a little bit, we find out in Exodus that he's going to be a sacrificial lamb, that he's going to be a lamb that is slaughtered, a spotless lamb, that once the blood is applied to the, to the people, that the, the wrath of God is going to pass over them. So we find out that there's going to be a sacrifice and shedding of blood that adds to what we knew. When we get into Leviticus, we find out that he's going to be our high priest. He's going to be the one that stands between us and God and intercedes for us and presents the sacrifice to God and sprinkles the blood before him and goes before God with our intercessory prayer. And so we find that out in Leviticus. In Numbers, 
We see that He is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that leads God's people through the wilderness. And so we see that He is our guiding light, that He is always with us and He's guiding us through all the dark times of the world. And then in um, Deuteronomy, we find out that He is a, going to be a prophet that is greater than Moses. In other words, he's going. Moses gave us the law. Moses gave us the Word of God, which was a great thing. But Moses tells us that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a prophet that gives the Word of God in a way that we've never experienced it before. And so we find out that he's going to be the one that gives the Word of God. And then in Joshua, we find out he's the captain of our salvation, the author of our salvation, the one that leads us into the promised lands and, and fights our battles before us. In Judges, we find out that he's going to be our judge and the one that determines right from wrong. He's going to be the one that delivers us from all of our enemies and from our captivity. In Kings and Chronicles, we find out that he's going to be the, the seed of David. He's going to be a child of David from that lineage that is going to rule on the throne of David over an eternal kingdom of Israel. And so whenever we get to the Psalms, we find out that He is our shepherd, our Lord, and we find out that He's our rock and our redeemer. And so the, the, the revelation of who the Messiah is just continues to expound. And then by the time we get to Isaiah, Isaiah starts laying out so many prophecies about what this Messiah is going to look like. But the problem with it is, is that the Jewish people miss a lot of this. They, they misinterpret a lot of it during this time. And because of that, they're anticipating this coming king that's going to deliver them here and now from, from enemies and set up the kingdom so that the Jews will have their place in, um, in Israel and in Jerusalem and that, that the kingdom of God is going to be set up immediately. And so because of this, when Jesus comes, you know the story if you've been in church any amount of time, He was nothing like what they expected their Messiah would be like. But the problem was, they missed all of the prophecies of what they said He was going to be. They saw it, but they didn't see it. And so when He came, He was nothing like what they expected Him to be. And so what my hope is, is that as we go through these servant songs, that we see Jesus in the prophecies of old, and as we see Him when Christmas gets here, we can celebrate that this is who Isaiah said He would be. And this is who He is to us. And this is what we celebrate in the birth of Christ. And so week by week, we're going to grow on that, and we're going to see more and more of who the Bible and who the prophets said that this Messiah was going to be. Now, I want you to be able to understand just a little bit of historical context here. By the time we get to chapter 42, you will at least remember that we have been studying the judgment of nations, right? We've been studying the coming judgment that's going to come on all of these nations. Assyria was going to come in and they were going to wipe out many of these great kingdoms of the world. And then eventually one day Babylon was going to come in and wipe out Assyria. And God was using each one of these as His servants, if you will. But even though these are servants that perform His judgment and His wrath for Him right now, they do it insufficiently. They do not do it in a way that is pleasing to God, in a way that God can delight in, but instead they do it according to the pride of their own heart. They don't do it in His glory and following Him and obedience to Him. God is just simply using their hardened hearts and He's using them as His servants. And then we also read in many of these prophecies that God calls the children of Israel His servant. And so you're going to be able to see a little bit of confusion when we read through these prophecies because sometimes he's talking about these nations and their leaders as his servants. Sometimes he's talking about Israel as a nation, as his servant. And it's going to be a little bit easier to see when he focuses in on not just Israel, but an individual that is going to come from Israel that is going to be his perfect servant the servant that is going to fulfill His will, and the servant that God will delight in in every way. But before we get there, I want you to be able to back up just a little bit and see. Let's look, take a little look at Isaiah chapter 41. I want you to be able to see that basically what's happening in verses 1 through 7, what we have happening is that judgment is coming. 
And because judgment is coming, it's already came in the form of Assyria, which God told them beforehand. If you've been through this series with me, you remember. God told them, I'm sending Assyria. He is a treacherous kingdom, and they're going to wipe out and destroy so many ungodly nations, including Israel. And then I'm going to save Judah and 10%, a remnant of it, but then Babylon is going to come in and Babylon is going to destroy this last part of Judah and take them into captivity. And all of that happened exactly like God said it would happen. But then in Isaiah 41, he wants them to know that he's stirring up another servant. This servant is the Persians. And the Persians are going to come in and they're going to deliver the Jews from the captivity that they're in. So if you'll notice in verse um, Verse 1 of chapter 41. He says, Listen to me in silence, O coastland. So he stretches as far out as it goes, right? Wherever people dwell at. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Why do they need to renew their strength? Because Assyria's already come through. Babylon's come through. Go ahead and let them renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak, and then let us draw near together for judgment. So God is calling all people in to, to be judged, right? And then look what he says in verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. In other words, he just, when he just comes through so fast and just wipes out whatever is in his way. And it says in verse 4, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. So because of that, because this other, you can renew your strength for a time, but I'm stirring up somebody else. So here's the thing about it. How many of you know that we have been able to experience a great time of peace in the United States for right now, right? But do you think the Lord is really going to let the United States go on forever the way that we are? No. Whether we realize it or not, unless Jesus comes back first, God is already stirring something else up. And judgment is always going. So there are times where He lets us catch our breath and, and He calls us together to listen and examine ourselves again. But then He says very plainly in verse 4 or in verse 5, The coastlands have seen this and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Here's what's, what's happening. You can't escape judgment. <clears throat> you can't escape trouble, right? You can't escape tribulation in this world. It's coming. These people were turning to everything else except to God for the troubles that they were in. They were actually making images that they were worshiping and sacrificing to and praying to. And God says, this is the dumbest thing that anybody can do. For you to put your hope and your trust and for you to find your satisfaction and your strength in anything other than God is... Just being an idiot. Can I put it plainly to you? And so God is looking at this and He says, I want you to bring your idols and I want you to bring all the things that you give your life to. I want all the things that you, you sacrifice your lives to. All the things that you live for, that you find your satisfaction and your strength in. Bring them near for judgment. We're going to examine them and see exactly what help they will actually be to you. But in the midst of this judgment, in verses 8 through 16, he simply speaks to his children and he says to them, this judgment is going to come through and it's going to affect you too. You're not going to escape it. But he makes some promises to them. He says, I've chosen you. You're my friend. I'm going to help you. I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to bring you through this. I am going to be with you as you go through this. That's the promise of God. So don't fear as this happens. All right. Now, whenever we get to verse 17 through 20, what we find out is that in the midst of this, God is going to transform things. He is going to make 
a wilderness into a beautiful lush forest. He's going to make a desert into a place of living water. He is going to make where there was no water a place where rivers of water flow out of you. And so he's going to completely transform this place. But by the time we get to verse 21, what happens is, look what God says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them, bring, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. In other words, here's what we're going to do. We're going to test all the things that you put your trust in. And we're going to see just exactly how much weight they hold as far as actually being a God worthy of your dedication, worthy of your worship. So he says here, bring all your idols, bring all your worship, bring it and let's set it here. We're coming into judgment together and I want you to be able to give them these tests and I want you to see whether or not it holds up to them being worthy of your life and your sacrifice. So let's look at what these tests are. In verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or let them declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. And so here's the first test of whether or not whatever it is that you give your life to, whatever it is that you put your security in, whatever it is that you find your satisfaction in. Here's the first test. Can it tell you the past? Can it tell you what's happening in the present? Can it tell you things to come in the future? Because guess what God has done? God has told you exactly what's happened in the past and why things are the way that they are. God has told you exactly what's going on in the present and the judgment that's coming and it's happened exactly as He said it would happen. God has told you the things that are coming in the future. Remember He told them, I'm stirring up Assyria and guess what happened? Assyria came did exactly like Isaiah said it was going to do. He told them, I'm stirring up the Babylonians and they're going to come and take Judah into captivity. And guess what happened? Exactly what God said was going to do. Now he's told them in this chapter, now that you're in exile, now that you're in captivity, I'm stirring up one from the east that's going to come and trample all kings under their foot, even you, Judah. And so he says here, I'm stirring up the Persians. I'm stirring up Cyrus. And guess what happens about a hundred years later? Exactly what God said was going to happen. It, you know, one of the things I love to do today is study archaeological um, finds in the biblical lands because there is so much archaeological evidence that they have uncovered that supports everything that history tells us about the events that took place. And so when God says... If you want to give your worship at something first, you need to make sure that they're actually a God. And if you want to know if they're a God, the first test is this. Do they know all things? Do they know the beginning of a thing and the end of a thing? Can they tell you things past, present, and future and it all be 100% accurate? Because let me tell you something. There are a lot of people that think they know the future. But they don't. They don't know. Only God is 100% accurate on everything that He has ever said about the past, about the present, and about the coming future. And if whatever it is that you give your life to and you worship and you serve in your life, if whatever it is cannot meet this test, it's not a God. And therefore, it is not worthy of your life. It is not worthy of your dedication. All right? Second test. Look with me in verse 23 again at the end of it. Or verse 23, he says, Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, here's the second test of a true deity. Do they have any real power to do both good and bring harm? In other words, can they reward the good and can they punish the evil? Because that's what a real God does. And so this is what God did with the Assyrians. He used them to punish the evil of the world, to punish the sin of the world. And this is also what He's going to do in Persia and Cyrus when He delivers Judah from captivity and He helps them and He saves them and He brings them back to their kingdom to build the walls that you read about in Nehemiah. 
and to come back to the nation and build the second temple that you read about in Haggai and many of the other prophets. But the point is this. If your God and what you worship and serve is not able to both punish evil and do good in your life, then they are not a God and they are not worthy of this. So here's what he says to them in verse 24. He brings these idols and all of these servants and he says, Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. It's an abomination is he who chooses you. So in other words, if you choose to serve and give your life to all of these things and they don't meet the standard of deity, it's an abomination. It's stupid. It's foolish. And then keep going with me in verse 25. I stirred up one from the north and he has come. Talking about um, the Assyrians now. He ain't talking about the ones from the east that are coming in the future. He's saying, look at what I did in the past. Look at what I told you and it has come to pass. He says, from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? God did. And beforehand He declared it that we might say, He is right. He's right. It happened exactly like He said it would happen. There was none who declared it, none proclaimed it, none who heard your words. In other words, there was none of your gods, none of the things you worship and serve has told you any of the reason why things are the way they are. They have not done anything to prepare you for what is to come in judgment in the future. And none of it has come to pass except what God alone has said. Therefore, He alone is worthy of your worship. He alone is worthy of your dedication. He alone is worthy of your sacrifice in your life, right? Now, if God's judgment is coming the way that He says it is, and has it already started? Haven't we already seen it? Has He shown you enough evidence yet to believe that what He says in the future is going to come? Alright? If that is true, and if He promises that He is going to strengthen and save, and that He is going to be with His chosen people, then the question that we have to ask is a very simple question. What will the one look like that will do this for them? Because the servant that we thought was going to be God's instrument of judgment didn't do it the way that God wanted it done. He trampled and he didn't do it according to mercy and according to compassion. He, he did it a completely different way. So we need a servant. God needs a servant that is going to bring justice and save His people exactly the way that He said it was going to be done, exactly the way that He desires for it to be done. So I want you to notice first of all, Look at um, Isaiah 41, verse 24. What's the first word that you see there? Behold, you are nothing. And what was he talking about? The idols and the gods that they serve that can't tell them about coming judgment, right? Can't tell them about salvation. Can't give them salvation. Can't change anything about the circumstances in the world in which they live, right? So behold, what does behold mean? Behold means look at them. Look at this, guys. It's not worth your life. But then what is the first word of chapter 42? Behold. 42 verse 1 says, Behold. In other words, now I want you to look. You've looked at the idols. You've looked at the servants that have failed. Now I want you to look and behold at my servant. The servant that is going to accomplish all of my will. Now, there are many places that people think that this is referring still to Cyrus of Persia that's coming that he referred to in 41. It's not. He's already told you very plainly. They're nothing. They can't do anything. And anybody who puts their trust in them is abomination. And so he's not talking about them. He's not talking about kings. He's not talking about Israel because Israel is going into captivity. They're the ones that need to be saved. And so... In this servant, he's talking about somebody different. And we know he's talking about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus told us that he was talking about him in Isaiah. Notice in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware of what? Aware that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, all right, for, for healing people on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. Now that's interesting, and it'll come up here in a minute. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. All right, what did Isaiah say, Jesus? Well, here's what Isaiah said. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and notice he changes it here, with whom my soul is what? Well pleased. Here in a minute we're going to read it in Isaiah, and he says, my soul delights in. Jesus interprets it for us and says, this means that God was well pleased with this servant. All right? And so, notice, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, here's what he's going to do. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then look at what he says in verse 18. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. This is the reason why he didn't want people to make him known. He wasn't doing this to put on a show. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings what? Justice to victory. Now remember, that's what God was using the Assyrians for. That's what God was using the Babylonians for. That's what God wanted to use Israel for. That's what God was going to use the Persians for. But all of those servants fell short. They did not bring justice to this, to victory. They only brought bits and pieces of justice and then their pride grew and they fell into their own sin. And so, finish in verse 21, we'll be done here. And in His name the Gentiles will hope. So the point that I'm making is this. Jesus said that when He healed everybody and didn't make Himself known, He, did, he wanted to keep people, He wasn't trying to make, his, make this healing worldwide, but instead He says here, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. I came here to bring justice, to bring it to victory. So justice has to do with helping those who are hurting, right? We're going to see that in a minute too. And he says here that whenever I bring this justice, I'm going to bring it to victory. I'm going to bring complete justice all the way around. And I'm not going to do it by crying aloud. I'm not going to do it by like the other servants did. They trampled kings underfoot and they, they made them dust. Now there is coming a day when he cries aloud. Look what he says in Isaiah 42. Go down a little further with me. Isaiah 42 verse, um, verse 14. Look what he says here. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. But now I will cry out like a woman in labor. You ever heard a woman in, her, in the heart of her labor? God said, that's the way I'm fixing to start crying out. He said, I've been quiet. I ain't lifted my voice. I ain't cried aloud. For a long time God has been about mercy and compassion. But the day is coming when that is over. And He's going to trample kings under His feet. And He is going to judge the way that we see in all these other places. But for a long time he hasn't done this. And at the end of verse 14 he says, I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And so anyway, you could go down through there. The point being is this. In the first time when Jesus comes to bring justice, he begins bringing it not in the way all these other servants failed to do it, he begins bringing it according to the heart of God, according to the way God wants to do it. So because of that, we know that this servant in Isaiah 42 is Jesus. Amen? Everybody with me now? So this servant is about Jesus. So now that we know that this servant is about Jesus and about Him fulfilling judgment and justice and bringing it to victory, and we know that it's about Him being able to save His people in the process of it, now we're going to look at what we can expect this servant to be. What do we see in this servant? So if you have your outline, we're ready for the first thing that we see in this servant. We want to behold the Lord's servant. We want to look at this servant of the Lord. The first thing we see in verse 1 of chapter 42 is the relationship of the servant. What kind of relationship does this servant have with God? Well, here's what we see. Notice what he says. Behold my servant whom I 
uphold. Literally, he is going to enable this servant to finish the task. All these other servants started the task and then they couldn't complete it, right? They failed at it. This servant, God is going to uphold and he is going to finish the task that God gives him to complete. And what is the task? We'll see it here in a few minutes. But next we see that in verse 1, this is his chosen. So in other words, this is the one that God chooses. And what does it mean to choose? Well, God sets his seal on him to do his work. This morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 27, we read that Jesus told the Jews that, He says, Do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. So in other words, God has made it very plain when you look at the life of Jesus that God has chosen Jesus to fulfill His purpose. You see it in the signs that He does. You see it in the compassion and the mercy that He has. God has set His seal on Him and God has chosen this person. And then in chapter 42 verse 1, it says, In whom my soul delights. Now you remember that in um, Jesus, when He was describing how He fulfilled this scripture, He said, In whom He is well pleased, right? And you remember another place where we heard that come straight out of the throne room of heaven? When Jesus was baptized, God Almighty looked and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him. And God said, this is my beloved, my chosen, the one that, He's my servant basically. And He is the one in whom I am well pleased. So what are we looking for in the servant of God? We're looking for somebody that God enables to finish the task that He gives him, not just start it. We're looking for somebody that God chooses and sets His seal on him to prove that He is the one that is starting the task and He is going to finish the task. And then we're looking for one that God is well pleased with. And who do we see that in? We see that in Jesus. And then look what He says next at the next part. He says here, I have put my spirit upon him. The next thing we see in this is that God Almighty has given him everything he needs to make sure that he is able to finish the task. This servant is different than any other servant. This servant has been given the spirit of God without measure. Look with me at John chapter 3 verse 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For He gives the Spirit without what? Without measure. Now listen, God enabled these other servants to do all the things they did. But this servant, He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is able to do everything that God the Father is able to do. And so we see that He has the Spirit of God upon Him in a way that is without measure. We also see that He's going to accomplish all that the Father wants in life. This is another reason why God delights in Him. God is well pleased in Him. And because God is a true God, God knows the beginning of a thing all the way to the end, right? Isn't it interesting that God didn't wait until Jesus died on the cross to say, this is my beloved Son. He didn't wait until Jesus said, it is finished, to say, that's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When did he say that he was well pleased with Jesus? Before he ever began the ministry. God already delighted in him and was well pleased with him before Jesus ever began the service as God's servant. And so again, all of these things we see that Jesus fulfilled in this aspect. Just to prove that to you, look at John chapter 4 verse 34. He says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to do what? To accomplish His work. This is the reason why God was well pleased with Jesus. Because Jesus came to do what God, Jesus came to be God's servant. And to do exactly. He's upheld by God. He has the Spirit of God without measure. He is God's one that God delights in and God is well pleased with. Look with me at another scripture, John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but what? 
the will of Him who sent me. Also in John 17 verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So there again, the point being is that God knew from the beginning that Jesus was going to be the servant that was going to start His work and Jesus would be the, the servant that would finish His work. What is His work? He's going to judge. He's going to bring judgment on the earth. He's going to do it in a way that God sees fit. He's going to bring justice to all the nations. And He is going to save God's people in the process of it. He's going to strengthen them. He's going to help them. He's going to uphold them. He's going to give them a reason not to fear in the midst of their judgment. All the promises of Isaiah 41 that all the other servants couldn't do, God is going to do it in Jesus in Isaiah chapter 42. Are y'all tracking with me? I ain't lost you yet, have I? I know this can get a little bit out there. All right, now, let's see what the mission is. What is the mission? So, notice again in 42 verse 1. The mission is that He is going to bring forth justice to all the nations. So the mission that God gives this servant to do is God wants justice in this world. Now we see this three times. The first time we see it is that He wants somebody in verse 1 that His soul can actually delight in. Now let me ask you a question. Is there, according to the Apostle Paul, anyone good in the world? There are none good, no, not one, correct? They are all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one God delights in. So we know that this servant can't be a human being That, as far as we are, right? This servant has to be somebody different. All right. What else do we know about this? It wants to be somebody that has the Spirit of God without measure and that God takes so much delight in that He is well pleased with Him. So in this first context, what does justice mean? Justice means somebody that's going to follow God and obey Him from start to finish, right? God wants somebody to fulfill the righteous requirement of His standard, what He expects mankind to be that mankind is filled at. Somebody has to complete that so that justice is fulfilled. Well, who is the only person that has ever lived that did that? Jesus did. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul said that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus lived a perfect life, right? And because of that, God is well pleased with Jesus and God delights in him and this is justice to God because we were unjust in the fact that we disobeyed him. What else is justice? Look down with me at verse uh, 2 and 3. Or verse, um, verse 3 of chapter 42. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what is justice in this verse? Justice is talking about not finishing something off that's broken. Not finishing something off that is barely burning. you got an image here of somebody that they are so bruised that for the most part they're not even worth using. But God... Is this servant is not going to come in and just trample them down the way that all the other servants did to bring justice. This servant is going to bring justice by healing the broken. This servant is going to bring justice by fanning up the flame of those that barely have anything left that is just smoking. And so this servant is going to bring justice in a way that helps the hurting. This servant is going to bring justice in a way that gives obedience to God and what he expects. One more place in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So here, the last section of justice, we see that we are waiting on the law of God to be spread to all of the world. We want to see God's law and God's light shine to the world so that all the world knows how to follow God. That's justice. And so how is this person going to accomplish this? Well, he is going to do it by not crying aloud. Look at verse 2, the method. He's not going to cry aloud. He's not going to lift up his voice. He's not going to make it heard in the street. 
He's not going to break bruised reeds. He's not going to um, quench out faintly burning wicks. He's going to faithfully bring forth justice. Here's the point that you need to see in this. God has a compassion and a heart for broken people. Matter of fact, God wants you to be broken. The whole point of the judgment that comes right now in this world is that you would see your sin and that you would be broken for it. Look at a few scriptures and, 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 and I'm going to fix them close here after this. Psalm 34 verse 18. Look at what he says here. The Lord is near to who? And he saves who? Alright, look with me if you would at Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a what? And a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Look at Psalm 147 verse 3. He heals who? The brokenhearted, and He binds up their wounds. This is not what the other servants were doing, but this is the heart of God, right? The heart of God is that justice is established, yes, but that it's done so in a way that heals up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. See, the problem with Israel in this day and time is they didn't do that. None of the other servants of God did this, but instead they broke the broken even more. They quenched the ones that barely had a flame burning. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 3 verse 14 through 15. And I probably didn't give this to him. I don't remember if I did or not. There it is. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of this people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, talking about his people. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. You took advantage of the poor. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Here's the point. The leaders of Israel were supposed to heal up the brokenhearted. They were supposed to increase the fire of God in people and instead they're quenching it. Think about the Pharisees in the, in the olden days. When that woman was called in adultery, were they concerned about restoring her when they brought her in front of Jesus? What did they want to do to her? They wanted to kill her. She's a broken reed. What did Jesus want to do? Jesus wanted to save her. Jesus brings forth justice, but He don't do it in a way like all these others that tramples, that brings them to dust. Instead, He comes in and He heals the broken. He says a broken reed, He's not going to finish, or a bruised reed, He's not going to finish breaking off. In other words, when God looks at the hurting, when God looks at the broken, He has compassion and He wants to heal and He wants to restore. He's not going to see you as a bruised reed like this woman caught in adultery. Or what about um, the man born blind? You remember when Jesus healed the man born blind? It was on the Sabbath and they come in there and the Pharisee, who, who healed you? Were they, were, they, were they happy that the man born blind was not blind anymore? No, their only concern was that it wasn't benefiting them. Justice was not being served. And so as a result of that, Jesus comes in and Jesus heals the man. And Jesus shows compassion. And Jesus shows hurting. What about um, um, the man with the, the withered hand? And I could go on and on and on. The point being is that this service came to establish justice. And he did it with the mercy of God to sinners who were broken. Christ comes and he shows God's tender care. He don't raise his voice aloud. Christ is not a street preacher telling everybody you're going to hell. And I know that we think that that's the method today, right? That's not the way Christ did it. Christ came. Did He preach the truth? You better believe He preached the truth. But at the same time, He did it with compassion. He did it with mercy. He didn't take bruised reeds and finish breaking them off. He didn't take a, a, a barely burning wick. You ever seen a candle when it's almost out? It's burned all the way down. And there's not much left, but just barely, maybe even just a, an amber of light, right? And then from that, what's coming out of it? Smoke. It's smoking like crazy, right? Because it is almost out. That's the image that we are given here in Isaiah 42. The image here is that God is not going to take a bruised reed and just break it. God is not going to take in this servant as he executes justice. He's not going to take somebody that barely has a flame, that barely has an ember of light in them, and then extinguish it the way that all these other servants did. This servant of the Lord that we're celebrating, 
is a servant that has the heart of God and he has compassion toward the hurting. He has compassion toward those that are broken, those that are barely have a flame in them whatsoever. Now let me ask you a question. Is that good news for us? How many of you ever have ever felt like that you were in a place that you can't even be used for anything? You know, I think about this bruised reed. Reeds in this day and time were used for all types of things. Sometimes, if they were strong enough, they could be used for a walking stick. Sometimes they were used for a pen. They make a pen out of, dip it in ink. and uh, There were so many various uses they had. But here's the thing about it. If a reed was bruised, it was weakened. And for the most part, a reed that was bruised, they would just go ahead and break it off and get it out of the way because it wasn't worth anything. God looks through this servant at people that the world would look at and say they're useless. They're at a point that they, they don't even have any use anymore. And God does not break them. But instead, God makes them whole and He restores them. God looks at a person who barely has a flame even burning anymore. You ever been there in your life? You barely even feel like you have an ember of anything left. All that's coming from you is just smoke. And yet, he don't reach down and extinguish it. Instead, he takes something and he starts fanning it. And the more he fans it, guess what happens to that flame? It gets greater and greater. See, for you and me, I'm thankful that God brings forth justice faithfully through this servant. Because I've been that broken reed. I've been that flame that just barely had a flicker. And He didn't put me out. He saved me. And He used me. And I am where I am today because of this servant. In closing, I'm going to skip my last point. You can read it for yourself if you've got your notes. In closing, this Messiah that we're looking for, He's Jesus. Jesus is the servant of God in Isaiah that we read about. He is the one in whom God is well pleased and greatly delights in. He's the one who has the Spirit of God without measure. He's the one who faithfully brings forth God's justice and humility and mercy towards the broken. And He is the one that one day will cry aloud and bring forth wrath to all of those who refuse to be broken right now. Jesus is this servant. Jesus is the one that even though people felt like they were a lost cause in their own hearts, they were bruised reeds, they were smoking flax, but He loved them and He didn't break them. He didn't finish quenching them out. He restores them, He makes them whole. And so this morning I want you to think about the woman at the well. She was a bruised reed, right? The rest of the world felt like she wasn't worth keeping. She needed to be broken on off. But guess what God did? God saw something different. And God came and He brought forth justice in this life by leading her to Him and saving her soul. The one caught in adultery we spoke about. What about the prostitute at Jesus' feet? You know why she was at His feet crying tears and washing it with her hair and anointing Him with perfume? And that Pharisee said, Yeah, if He were really God, then He would know who that is that's touching His feet. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> let me tell you about a man that was forgiven very little and a man that was forgiven a whole lot. Who do you think is going to love him the most? Well, I suppose the man that was forgiven of a lot. That's why she loves me the way that she does. Because she knows how broken she actually is. See, here's the problem, guys. We're all broken. Some of us just don't know it. And I'm thankful today that when we find ourselves in the place like this prostitute, like the woman at the well, like the woman caught in adultery, I'm thankful that when we finally realize how broken we are, we're like that man, that tax collector that stands in front of the temple and just beats his chest. He can't even lift his eyes up to heaven and all he can say is, Father, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, justice has been served, salvation has come to that man's house today. And so I love this 
when the, the, the lepers came back to Jesus, the one, he recognized how broken he was. Whenever the man with the demon-possessed son said, if you can do anything, and Jesus said, in other words, people realized how broken they were and how much they needed a Savior. And those are the kind of people that God will not break. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how much of a flame you've got left and all you see is smoke. Guys, I'm telling you, God sent a servant that brings justice, not in a way that tramples you out, but in a way that fans your flame back into existence and He gives you new life. And so this morning, you may know that you're damaged goods. This morning, you may know that... <laughs> You do not deserve to be used by God whatsoever. This morning you may feel like you don't even need to lift your eyes. All you can do is beat your breast and bow your head and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to tell you that's exactly the kind of people that God's servant came to save. That's exactly the kind of people that God came to heal. And that's exactly the kind of people that He still calls today. But I warn you, there is coming a day when his long-suffering and his silence, he said, for a long time I have held my peace. But there's coming a time when I'm going to cry out like a woman in labor. I'm going to gasp and I'm going to pant and I'm going to lay everything waste. But right now is a time of mercy and right now is a time of grace. And I pray that no matter where you are, that you will not forsake this servant, that you'll not walk away from what he came to give you freely. And I hope today's the day that you'll humble yourself before him and you'll let him heal you and you'll trust it and you'll thank him and you'll praise him and you'll be like that prostitute at his feet, washing his feet with your tears because you know what he's done for you.